The Everlasting Club by Arthur Gray, read by Halsey Mark, podcast show. There is a chamber in Jesus College, the existence of whom is probably known to few who now reside, and fewer still have penetrated into it or even seen its interior. It's on the right hand of the landing on the top floor of the Patricia's staircase, which some forgotten story connected with its traditionally called Kyle Lane, a paddock which secures its massive open door, is very rarely unfastened, for the room is bare and unfurnished. Once it served as a place to, or deposit for a superlicious kitchen, where, but, but even that ignominious use has passed from it, and now left in undisturbed solitude darkness, for I shall say, that it is entirely cut off from the light of the outer day by the walling up some time of, in the eighteenth century of its single window. Such light as ever reaches it comes from the door when rare occasions cause it to be open. Yet, no, yet at no extraordinarily remote day this chamber was eventually been, been benefited and for it was given up to the darkness, was comfortably fitted, according to the standard of comfort, which was known in college in the days of George II. There was still a roomy fireplace before, which legs were sketched, and wine and gossip was, were circulated in the days of wigs and barricade. The room is spacious, and when it was lit, lighted by the window, looking eastward after the fi- over the fields and common, it must have been a cheerful place, for the sociable don, let me state in brief, prosaic outline the circumstances which account for the gloom and solitude which this room has remained now for nearly a century and a half. In the second quarter of the eighteenth century, the university possessed a great variety of clubs of social kind. There were clubs in the college parlours, clubs in private rooms or inns and coffee houses, clubs favoured with politics. Clubs, curricle, clubs purporting to be learned, learned and literary. Well, whatever the professional, professed, particular identity, the aim of each was quadruple. Some of them, which included undergraduates as well as seniors, were dissipated enough, and a limited provisional way apes of progeny of such clubs as the Hellfire Club, London of London Authority. Among the last of was one which was once more select and more evil frame than any of its fellows, by a circular instant presently to be explained, the minute book of, the, of this club included years from seventeen thirty eight to seventeen sixty six came to the hands of the master of Jesus College. And through so, though so far I am aware, is no longer extent. I have before me a transcript of which, though it is in recent handwriting, presents a bold shape which, a rectangular array of facts, that I must ask you to accept them as various. The original book is described as stout do resilium volume bound in red leather and fastened with red silken strings. The writings occupied some 40 pages at the end of the date, November 2nd, 1766. The club in question was called the Everlasting Club, a name specifically explained by its rules, setting forth in the popular book. The numbers were limited to seven. They all seem, it was seen that its members were all young men between 22 and 30. One of them was a fellow commoner of Trinity, three of them were fellows of colleges. Among them I sh- should especially mention a fellow of Jesus named Charles Bresseyer. Another of those landed property in the country, and the sixth was a young Cambridge physician, founder and president of the club, was the Honourable Alan Demott, who was the son of an Irish peer, who attained a gentleman's degree in the university and lived in the idleness of, in the town. 
Very little is known of his life and character, but little is highly in his disfavour. He was killed in a duel at Paris year in 1746 and circumstances which I would not but which point to extremely sexual degree of cruelty and wickedness in the slam men. I quote from the first page of the minute book some of the laws of the club which explain its constitution. 1. This society consists of seven unlastings that may be corporal or uncorporal as destiny may determine. 2. The rules of society itself so herein within are immutable and everlasting. 3. None shall hereafter be chosen into society and none shall cease to be members. 4. The honorable and endowment is the everlasting president of the society. 5. A senior corporal or everlasting, not being president, shall be secretary of the society. A book of minutes shall record its entrances, a date in which any everlasting, any everlasting shall cease to be corporal. All fines due to the society, and each, and when such senior everlasting shall cease to be corporal, he shall, whether in person or by other, shall hand deliver this book or minutes to him, who should be next senior at the time corporal. We shall, in in like manner, recall to tr- the transitions of therein and transmit to the next senior. The neglect to free these positions provisions shall be visited by a president with a fine or punishment according to his discretion. 6. On the second day of November and every year since the Feast of All Souls at 10 o'clock post millennium, the everlasting must meet a supper and place of residence of the corporal member of the society to whom it shall fall in order of rotation to entertain them and shall be all described in this book and minutes. Names and present place of abode. Seven. They shall be obliged to of every everlasting to be present at the yearly entertainment of society and shall not allege to, of excuse that he was not invited thereto. If any lasting shall fail to to attend, fail to attend the yearly meeting, or his term shall fail to provide entertainment for the society, he shall be mulligated at the attention of the president. 8. Nevertheless, if any year, the month of October, not less than seven days before the Feast of All Souls, a major part of the society, that is to say, four at least, shall meet to record the writing these minutes, and it their desire that no entertainment be given that year. Then, notwithstanding the two wills of hers, shall be no entertainment in that year, and no everlasting shall be mulligated on the ground of his absence. The rest of the rules are neither too profane or too parole to be quoted here. They indicate the extraordinary levity with which the members entered their propriety's obligations in particular to omission of any regulation to transmission of the minimum after the last everlasting ceased to be corporate with only the accident it fell into the hands of the one who was not a member of the society and the consequent preservation is consents to the present day. Low as it was the standing morals of all classes of the university first half of the 18th century, a fragrant descent of public decorum by the members of the Everlasting Club brought upon it the stern closure of the authorities and after a few years was practically dissolved. Its members banished from the university. Charles Barrios, for instance, was obliged to leave the college and though he retained his membership, fellowship, he remained absent for nearly 20 years but the minutes of the society reveal some terrible reason for his virtual ex- extinction. Between the years of 17... 1738 and 1743, the minutes book recalled many meetings of the club. It met on the occasion besides that of all Saints Day, apart from a great deal of impersonality, apart the writers, 
It was limited to formal record of attendance of the members, fines inflicted, and so forth. But meeting on November 2nd, latter year, is first to which there meant any departure from stereotype forms. The supper was given, house of physician, one member, Harry Devonport, a former fellow commoner of Trinity, was absent from entertainment. He was, then, he was serving in Germany at the Dinting, on, in the Dinting campaign. The minutes contained an entry, Maculus Propita Asinium de Presidentum Henton Devonport. An entry in the next page on the book where runs Harry Devonport by the cannon shot became an incorporeal member November 3rd, 1743. The minute given in this handwriting, under dated November 2nd, names, addresses, six of their members. First in the list, a bold hand at the autograph of Alan Belmont. President of the Court of His Royal Highness, now in, in October, Dermot certainly had been intense as the Royal Pretender to Paris, and but doubtless of the address he was given was understood at a time by the other. I have been asked him to refer the fact. On October 28, five days before the meeting of the club, he was killed, so I already mentioned in the duel. The news of his death cannot be could not reach Cambridge to November 2nd for the Secretary's records it placed below of Devonport the date of November 10th. This day was reported that the President was come an ill corporal by the means of the French Chevalier and a sudden embolment having going contrast with his presence. previous fantasies dashed down the good God us from all Ill. The tidings of the present death have scattered the everlasting like a thunderbolt. They left Cambridge and buried themselves in widely parted regions, but a club did not cease to exist. The secretary still bound to his fate, hateful records. The five survivors did not dare to neglect their fatal obligations. Horror of the presence of present made of November gathering once they ever possible for lot, but the horror too forbade them to neglect the meeting of October of every year to join in writing their obligations to the celebration. For five years five names were amended and the entry in, in the minutes that all the business of the club. It, then another member died who was not in the sec, been, was not secretary. For eighteen years Eighteen more years, four miserable men met each once each year to deliver the same format or protest. During these years, we gather from the signatures, Charles Bannis returned to Cambridge, and parents christened, chastened, and decorous. He occupied the rooms which I have described on the staircase on the corner of the coaster. Then in 1766 comes a new handwriting, an altered minute. January 27th, on this day, Francis Wetherington, secretary, became an uncorporal member. The same day this book was delivered to me, James Harvey, lived only a month. The same entry in March 7th states the book was descended. The same mysterious celebrity, celebrity to by William Cuthbert by then on April, May, or May, then on May 18th, John Bellis writes that on the day, being the day of the Catherine's decease, the Minute Club has come to him as the last surviving corporal of the club. As my purpose is recalled fact only, I shall not attempt to describe the feelings of an unhappy secretary when he penned her to her final, final record. When Winnerton died, we have to come home to be the three survivors after twenty-three years intermission of ghostly entertainment must be annually renewed. With the addition of fresh corporal guests, well, we must undergo the pitiless censure of the president. I think likely the terror the alternative copied the mysterious delivery of the minute book was answerable to the deceased. Speedy deceased of the two successors of the Minister's secretarialship. Now, the alternative has been offered by Mr. Scarlow. We have firmly resolved to clear the consequences, whatever that may be, of infringement of 
club rules. We were a gracious day to George II who passed away from the university that succeeded by times of un- onward respectability. When regions of morals were no longer publicly challenged, when Berlin's two dependents of youth had passed, he was discreet, perhaps exemplary. The scandal of his early contact was unknown to most of the new generation condemned by a few survivors who were witnesses. Witness it. On the night of the, um, November 2nd, 1766, a terrible event arrived at old ambulance of the college, the memory of those evil days from 10 o'clock to midnight. A headless uproar went on the chamber of Balius, who were, who the, his companions none knew. Blasphemous outcries, rabid songs such as never been heard for 20 years past. Because Rouse for sleep or study the occupants heard for twenty years past. Rouse for sleep or study the occupants of the cult. A moment of voices was not like the barriers. A few, a twelve sudden silence fell upon the closest, but the master lay awake at night, troubled with the relapse of a respected colleague and the horrible example of liberalism set to his pupils. In the morning, all returned quiet from the baronet's chamber. When his door was opened, soon after daybreak, the early light creeping through dawn curtains revealed a strange scene. About the table drawn seven chairs, some of which had been overthrown, and furniture was a chaotic disorder after some wild orgy. In the chair at the foot of the table was sat a lifeless figure of the secretary, his pen bent over his folded arms, though so he would shield his eyes from the same horrible sight. Before him the table lay pen, ink, and the red minute book. On the last inscribed page, under the date of November 2nd, written for the first time since 1742, the autographs of seven members of the Everlasting Club, but without address, the same strong hand in which the present name was written. There was an... an there were appended below the signatures, and that's Mercurius Deeper, Pesitinium, Propertium, Neglectum, Obedias, Carbadius. The mini book was secured by the master of the college, and I believe that he alone was acquired, acquired with the nature of its contents. The scandal reflected the college by senses revealed. It caused him to keep the knowledge rigidly to himself, but some suspicion of the nature of the occurrences had proclaimed to the students and servants his long abiding belief in the college that Henry on the night of November second sounds of her unholy brevity were heard an issue from the chamber of Charles Bellius. I can't learn that the occurrences of adjoining room had been disturbed by them. Indeed, it's plain for the minutes. Owing to the improvident drafting, no provision was made for the perpetuation of all saints' entertainment. Remember it was secured by Master College and I believe that in Lowe was acquired nature's contents of scandal reflected in the college by which success revealed it caused him to keep the knowledge rigidly to himself, but some suspicion the nature of the occurrence must have proved procluded to students and servants, for they are a long abiding relief at the college, and only on the night of the November second sounds, on an unholy reverie have heard to issue from the chamber of the child by this I cannot learn the, uh, that the occupants of the adjoining rooms have been disturbed by them. Indeed, it's plain from the minutes that they owe to the improvement. Drafting, no provision was made for everlasting to be all, all saints. A 
Where was I? A minute book was secured by the master of the college, and I believe we left it unquiet when nature of the contents. The scandal was erected by the college's circumstances. Revealed in course him to keep the uh, knowledgeable rigidity to himself. By some suspicion, the nature of the occurrences may have polluted the students and servants, for they were loyally buried in belief in the college that only on the night of November 2nd, sounds of holy and holy reverie were heard to issue from the chamber's trails various. I could not learn that the, the occupants of the joining rooms ever been disturbed by them. Indeed, plain for the minutes that owing to their improvement da- drafting, no provision was made for the population of all souls' entertainment after last everlasting cease of corporal. Such suspicious belief must be treated with comprehensive incredulity. But whether that of the cause and other rooms are shut up remain tenderness from that day to this. Holsey Mark Podcast Show Charles Dickens and the Ghost Club The founding In 1885, a couple of gents in Trinity College in Cambridge started a meeting talking about ghosts, spirits and all things supernatural. By 1862, they made their way to London and launched a formal society, the Ghost Club. It was at the time that Dickens signed on as a founding member. The founding of the Ghost Club, which still exists today, is considered one of the oldest paranormal investigation groups in the world. It was met with mixed reviews. The 1860s were a heyday of spiritualism in London. Sciences and hauntings are firmly in vogue. But even at the height of ghost mania, Ghost Club was still considered rather silly. The London Times openly ridiculed the group. It was membership of the worldly famous Charles Dickens who made Ghost Club seem at least legit. Dickens was the only author to join the, the Ghost Club. So Alpha Colin Doyle, Kratos Sherlock Holmes was also an early member, and Die Hard Spiritualist. Dickens, who had a, a more of a love-hate thing going on with ghosts, on one hand he had been obsessed, obsessed with ghosts since childhood, when his nanny on on obviously named Mrs. Mercy, used to tell him tales of strange and elderly. He loved to write and read ghost stories, and he was in... He was also into hypnosis. He treated his wife's headaches by hypnotising her, although he refused to let anyone try to put him in a trance. On the hand, Dickens was a sceptic, a fan of scientific theory. He didn't discount the possibility of real ghosts, but he believed that the vast majority... A paranormal phenomenon was the disordered condition of one of the nerves or senses. He was interested in using the golf ghost club to investigate and debunk hauntings across London. But did he believe in science? But did believe in science stop him from going out to ghost hunts? No, he did not. Ghost hunters, but. Club's first major case was to investigate the Devonport Brothers and the so-called Spirit Cabinet. The Devonport Brothers were a team of American magicians touring England and claimed to harness supernatural forces with a spirit cabinet trick where they would be tied up in a box surrounded by musical instruments. The box would be closed and the instruments would play before the box was opened again. To view the brothers still tied up, ghosts had been playing the instruments and spookily, except not really. The ghost hub with the help of some friendly magicians debunked the act and presumably ruined the Devonport Brothers' livelihood. They actually built their own replica of spirit box cabinet and with secret component to prove the trick could be done without ghosts, which seems kind of necessary, unnecessary, but it impressed Victorian auditors, so we took that out as a win for the ghost club. The club went on to investigate the bust Similar claims of haunting supernatural activity for years. Unfortunately for the club members, though Dickens was such a driving force that the go- that the golf cl- the golf ghost club dissolved for several years after his death in 1870. Naturally, 
Dickens' ghost turned up in a seance in America just five days after his own death to clarify the ending of his unfinished novel, The Mystery of Edward Doon. The surviving members of the ghost club never managed to get, make the trip and debunk that claim, so we have to assume that it's true and proven otherwise. The Mark podcast show, a street cat named Bob. By James Brown. Chapter One Famous Travellers. There's a famous quote I read somewhere, I read somewhere. It's always, it says we're always given second chances every day of our lives. They, they're there, they are there for the taking. It's just that we don't usually take them. I spent a big chunk of my life proving that quote. I was given a lot of opportunities, sometimes on a daily basis, for a long time. I failed to take them, any of them. But then, in the early spring of 2007, it eventually began to change. It was then that I befriended Bob. Looking back on it, something tells me it might have been his second chance too. I first encountered him, him on a gloomy Thursday evening in March, London. Hadn't, London hadn't quite shaken off the winter. It was still bitterly cold on the streets, especially the winds blew off the Thames. There had been... A hint of frost in the air that night, which was why I arrived back at my new sheltered accommodation in Tottenham, North Road, a little earlier than usual, after a day busking around the Covent Garden. As normal, I had my black guitar case and rucksack slung over my shoulders, but this evening I also had my closest friend, Belle, with me. We'd gone out together years ago. We're just mates now. We're going to get a cheap takeaway curry and watch a movie in a small black and white set I managed to find in a charity shop around the corner. As usual, the lifted apartment block wasn't working, so we needed to... So we headed for the first flight of steps, resigned to making the long trudge up to the fifth floor. The strip lighting in the hallway was broken and part of the ground floor was swathed in the darkness. But as we made on the way to the stairwell. I couldn't help noticing a pair of glowing eyes in the gloom. When I heard a gentle, slightly plaintive meowing, I realised what it was. Edging closer, it was a half in the half-lit light. I could see a ginger cat curled up on a doormat outside of the, the ground-floor flats in the corridor that led off the hallway. I'd grown up with cats and always had a soft spot for them. As I moved in and got a look, good look. I could tell he was a tom, a male. I, could, I hadn't seen him around the flats before. Not even in the darkness I could tell there was something about him. I could already tell he had something of a personality. He wasn't the slightest bit nervous, in fact. Completely opposite. There was a quite unflattable confidence about him. He looked like he was very much at home. In the shadows. And judged by the way he was fixing me with a steady intelligence there I was one who was straying into his territory if, if, if it was he who was saying so who are you and what brings you here I couldn't resist kneeling down and introducing myself hello mate oh, I've not seen you before do you live here I said he just looked at me the same studious sighting aloof expression as he was still weighing me up I decided to stroke his head, neck partly to make friends, but partly to see, is wearing a collar of any form of identification. It's hard to tell in the dark, but I realised that there was nothing which immediately stressed me. It's a stray. London had more than its fair share of those. He seemed to be enjoying the attention, before and began brushing himself lightly against me. As I petted him a little more, I could feel that his coat was poor condition. I was even bald patches here and there. He was clearly in need of a good meal. From the way he was rubbing against me, he also in a bit of a need of TLC. Poor chap, I think he's a stray. He's not, he's not, he's, he's not got a collar and he's really thin. I said, looking up at Belle, who was waiting patiently by the foot of the stairs. So he saw I had a weakness for cats. No, James, you can't have him. 
she said, nodding towards the door. The fact the cat was sitting outside. It can't have just one. It can't have just have wandered in here and settled in its spot. You must have belonged to wherever lives it there. Probably waiting for them to come at home and let him in. But Utley agreed with her. I couldn't pick up the cat and take him home with me, even if the signs pointed to the fact that it was homeless. I barely moved into, into its place myself. It's still trying to sort out my flat. What is it? What is it if it did belong to a person living in the flat? They weren't going to be take too kindly to someone carrying off their pet, Ollie. But I was like, the last thing I needed right now was the extra responsibility of a cat. I was a failed musician, a recovering drug addict, living hand-to-mouth existence, sheltered accommodation, taking responsibility for myself was hard enough. The following morning, Friday, I headed downstairs to find the ginger Tom, still waiting there. As if he had shifted from the same spot in the past twelve hours or so. following morning, Friday, I headed downstairs to find Ginger Tom still sitting there. It was as if he hadn't shifted from the same spot the past twelve hours or so. Once again, I dropped down on my one knee and stroked him. Once again, it was obvious that he, that he loved it. He was purring away, appreciating the attention he was getting. He hadn't learned to trust me 100% yet, but I could tell he would, thought I was okay. In the daylight, I could see he was a gorgeous creature. He had a really striking face with amazing piercing green eyes. Though looking closer, I could tell that he must have been in a fright or an accident because there were scratches on his face and legs. As I guessed the previous evening, his coat was in a very poor condition. It was a very thin and wary in places. There was at least half a dozen bull patches that could see the skin. I now feeling generally concerned about him. But again, I told myself, I had more than enough to worry about getting myself straightened out. So more than a little reluctantly, I headed off to catch a bus from Tottenham to central London, a cover gone where I was going to once again try and earn a few quid busking. By the time I got back that night, it was pretty late, around almost ten o'clock, I immediately headed for the corridor where I had seen the Tom, Ginger Tom, but there was no sign of him. Part of me was disappointed. I'd taken a bit of a shine to him. I mostly felt relieved. I assumed he must have been let in by his owner when he, they got back from wherever it was they'd been. My heart sank a bit when I went down again the next morning. I saw him back in the same position again. By now, 
He was slightly more vulnerable and disheveled than before. He looked cold and hungry. He was shaking a little. Still there, then, I said, stroking him. Not looking good, so good today. I decided this had gone on for long enough. So I knocked on the door of the flat. I felt I had to do something. It was this. It was, if this was their pet, there was no way to treat him. They needed something. He needed something to eat and drink, and perhaps some medical attention. A guy appeared to the door. He was unshaven, wearing a t-shirt and a pair of dietary bombs. It looked like he'd been sleeping, even though it was the middle of the afternoon. Sorry to bother you, mate. Is this your cat? I asked. For a second, he looked at me. It was I was slightly mad. What cat? He said. Before looking down and seeing the ginger tom curled up on the ball on the doormat. Oh no, he said with disinterest. Shrug. Nothing to do with me, mate. Been in there for days, I said, look again, drawing a bank lot. Has he? Must have been smelt cooking or something. Well, as I say, nothing to do with me, mate. Then he slammed the door shut. I made him. I made my mind up immediately. Okay, mate, you can you can come in with me. I said, digging into my rucksack for a box of biscuits. I carried specifically to give treats to the cats and dogs that regularly approached me to when I was busking. I rattled at him, and he was immediately up on all fours following me. I could see he was a bit uneasy on his feet, and carrying one of his back legs in an awkward manner, so we took our time climbing the five flights of stairs. A few minutes later, we were safely in coast, coast in my flat. No flat was but threadbare, fair to say, apart from the tuddy. All there was was a second-hand sofa bed, a mattress in the corner of a small bedroom, and a kitchen area in a half-working work, refrigerator, a microwave, kettle, and a toaster. There was no cooker. The only other things in the flat were my books, videos, and knickknacks. I was a bit of a magpie. I collected all sorts of stuff for the streets. All at the time, I had a broken parking meter in one corner, a broken mannequin with a cowboy hat on his head in the other, a friend once called me at my place, the old curiosity shop, but he sussed out his new environment. The only thing that Tom was curious about was the kitchen. I fished out some milk from the fr- fridge, poured it out on the silver, and mixed it with a bit of water. I know what the con- I know that, contrary to the popular opinion, milk could be bad for f- cats because, in fact, they were actually latos intolerable. I flapped. I, I lapped it up for second in, in seconds. I had a bit of a tuna in, in the fridge, so I mixed it up with the same mashed up biscuits and gave that him as well. Again, he wolfed it down. Poor thing, he must be absolutely starving, I thought to myself. After the cold and dark of the corridor, the flat was starlatry as far as Tom was concerned. He seemed very pleased to be there, and after being fed, in the kitchen, he headed for the living room, where he curled up on the floor near the radiator. As I sat and watched him more carefully, there was no doubt in my mind there was something wrong with his leg. Sure enough, when I sat on the floor next to him and started examining I found that he had a big abscess on the back of his right rear leg. The wound was the size of a large canine-like tooth, which gave me a good idea how he got it. It gave He'd probably been attacked by a dog or possibly a fox that stuck his teeth in his leg and clung on to him as he tried to escape. He also had a lot of scratches. One of his well, his face was not far from his eye and the others on his coat and legs. I sterilised the wound as best as I could. I could I could by putting him in a bathtub and putting some non alcohol moisture moisturizer around the wound and some Vaseline on the wound itself. A lot of cats would have great havoc. We tried to treat him like that, but he was good as gold. He spent most of the day curled up in what was already the favourite spot near the radiator, but he also roamed around the flat a bit every now and then again, jumping and scratching whatever he could find. Having ignored it earlier on, he now began to find the mannequin in a corridor a bit of a magnet. I didn't mind. He could do whatever he liked. I know Newton Tom's could be very lively. I, I could tell he was a bit of a pent-up energy. When I, I went to stroke him, he jumped up and started pawing at me. At one point, he was got quite animated, scratching furiously, and almost cutting my hand. Okay, mate, calm down. I said, lifting him off, putting him down on the, lifting, putting, 
lifting him up off me and putting him down on the floor. I knew that the young males, who hadn't been neutered, could become aggressively lively. I guess that he was not complete, as well in security, and wouldn't be sure, of course, but if, again, underlying the nagging feeling that he must have come off the streets rather than at home. I spent the evening watching television, and Tom goes right away there, seemed content to be there. He only moved again then. I went to bed, went to bed, picking himself up and followed me into the bedroom, where he wrapped himself in a ball by his feet at the edge of the bed. As I listened to his gentle purring in the dark, it felt good to have him there. He was in his com- company. I guess I'm not a lot of that lately. On Sunday morning, I got up weasley early, decided to hit the streets to see if I could find his owner. I figured out that someone might have stuck up a lost cat poster. It was almost always a photography bill for the return of a missing pet plus on local lampposts, nose birth balls and even bus stops. There seemed to be so many missing bongies. There were times when I wondered whether there was a catnapping gang at work in the area. Just in case I found the owner quickly, I saw the cat with me attached to him. I took the cat with me and attached him to a leech. I made out of a shoelace to keep him safe. He was happy to walk by my side as we took the stairs to the ground floor. Outside the block of flats, the cat began pulling at the string. Leaders, he guess, wanted to head off. I guess he wanted to do his business. Sure enough, he headed into a patch of greenery and bushes adjoining the neighborhood building just for a minute or two the he did nature's call. He then returned to me, happily stepped under the le- into the lead. You must be really trust me, I thought to myself. I really felt that he, I had to pay the trust and try to help him out. My first of all call was the lady who lived across the street. She was known locally for looking after cats. She fed the neighbourhood strays and got them neutered. If necessary, she lived at the door, opened the door. I saw at first five cats living inside. Goodness, how many more she had at the back. It seemed that every cat for miles headed for a backyard, knowing it's the best place to get some food. I didn't know how she could afford to feed them all. We saw, she saw Tom look, took a shine to him, and straight away offering him a little treat. She was a lovely lady, but didn't know anything about where he came from. She didn't seem, didn't seem from the area. I bet he came from somewhere else in London. Wouldn't surprise me, he's been dumped, she said. She said in that. He said, keep her eyes and ears open in case he heard anything. I had a feeling she was right about him being from somewhere far from Dr. Rand. But out of interest, I took the cat off his lead to see if he knew the direction to go. But he walked to the streets. It was obvious he didn't know where he was. He seemed completely lost. He looked at me to say, I don't know where I am. I want to stay with you. We were out, we were out for a couple of hours, a few hours. At one point, he scurried off in a bush to do his business again. He didn't mean to ask any person locals whether he recognised him. All I got was blank looks and shrugs. It was obvious he was—he didn't want to leave me. As he wandered around, I couldn't help wondering about his story, where he come from, and what sort of life he led before he came and sat on the mat downstairs. Part of me was convinced that the cat lady across the street was right. He was a family pet. He was a fine-looking cat and probably been brought for Christmas, someone's birthday. Gingers can be a bit mental, worse not, and worse if not neutered. I already seen they can be very dominant, much more so than any other cat. My hunch was that when he became boisterous and frisky, he was also become a little too hard to handle. I imagine the parents take, saying enough is enough, rather than taking him to refuge or a RSPA, CA, sticking him in the back of the family car, taking him to a drive, throwing him out into the street or the end of on the roadside. Cats have a great sense of direction. The others have been let loose far from home and couldn't come back. Or maybe known that he was really wasn't really home at all and decided to find a new one. My lone other fear was that he belonged to an older person who had passed away. Of course it was possible he wasn't case at all. In fact, he wasn't in house trained, was made no argument against me, having him de- been designated, 
domesticated, but more, but the more I got to know him, the more convinced I was he had definitely been used to be, being around one person. He seemed to latch onto people who he thought would look after him. That's what he'd done with me. Business is clear about his background was his injury, which was nasty. He definitely picked that up in the fight. The way he was le- leaking pus, the wound had been a few days old, maybe just a, even a week. They suggested another possibility to me. London was always had a large population of street cats, strays who wandered the streets living on scraps and comfort of strangers. Five or six hundred years ago, places like Chisholm Street in the city, Clarkwell Clark Screen, Drury Lane used to be known as Cat Streets, and were overrunning with them. These trays were the flotsam and jetsam in the city, running around fighting for survival on a daily basis. A lot of them were like the ginger tom, slightly battered looking creatures. Maybe he spotted a kindred spirit in me. Chapter 2 Road of the Two Recovery. I've been around cats since I was a child. I felt I. I had a pretty good understanding of them. While I was growing up, my family had several Siamese. I remember that one stage we also had a beautiful turtle cat. And memories of them all are generally fun ones. But inevitably, I suppose the one that struck most vividly in my mind was the darkest. I've grown up in London, I've grown up in England, Australia for a while. We lived in a place called Kirkby in West Australia. While we were there, we had a lovely white fluffy kitten. I can't remember where we got it from. But it was feeling it might have been for the local farmer. Whereas I had to come from, it was a, wherever it had come from, it was a terrible home. Whatever reason, it couldn't have been checked out medically beforehand, being handed over to us. It turned out that the poor thing was flea written. Had it been immediately apparent, the problem was that because the kitten had been thick white fur, the fleas were festering in there, nobody knew. Fleas are parasites, of course. They draw the life out of these creatures to sustain their own. They basically drain the poor cat and get into its blood. By the time we spotted it, it was too late. I rather took it to the vets, but she was told that it would pass the point of no return. It had all sorts of infections and other problems. It died within a couple of weeks of us getting it. I was five or six at the time. I was devastated, as was my mother. I thought about the kitten often after the years, usually whenever I saw a white cat. But we had been up, we had been on my mind a lot this week, and as I spent time with the Tom, I could tell that his coat was in a bad state. It really was threadbare in places. I had an awful feeling that it would suffer the same fate as a white kitten. Goodbye, the book. A street cat named Bob by James Browning on Kindle. Or watch the film. Based on the book. Thank you. Bye. Holes of the Mount Podcast Show. Abracadabra. Ancient Rome was ravaged by malaria. Material DNA from Roman site dating around AD 450. The oldest definitive evidence of the disease. It some suspect played a role in the Roman Emperor's collapse, but evidence suggests the Romans were not concerned about spreading malaria, but with the mosquito bite, the word malaria comes from the Italian words for bad air. Most ancient Romans regarded malaria as magical or religious, a work of a demon. Malaria specifically is mentioned more frequently than any other disease in the magical texts of ancient Greece and Rome. Roman mythology even has its own tendency, dignity, to protect people from malaria, feverous. Which brings us to Agricadabra. Its earliest mention is a text of the 3rd century Roman physician, Quintus Cyrenius Samonorus. His only surviving work, the Labia Medicalis, he describes a cure to treat what we know today as malaria. Is Sirius Chartius 
cum dopium aptagarabia. Sicurus and textium mobidius sed durium seminae. Et musiet et musiet destinen apanemia figurus. Singular quoti sema repis of cura figures. Duki in English ricara lemma cumdum. His lemma consists column de mira mento. Serious instructs ordered the cure seekers write the word abracadabra on a piece of paper and write the word underneath but remove some letters from the line above over and over until the word becomes reduced to a single letter. It would look like No, look like nothing, just smaller things. Sirius was instructed that the afflicted to bind the paper, wrap it in linen, and wear it with a, as a tunnelman round the neck for nine days, after which they would find it over the boulder, fling it over the boulder shoulder into a river running eastward. The tunnelman was meant to create a shield between the bad air and fevers that seemed to be associated with swampy terrain. It didn't work, Sirius suggested that you should always smear lion's fat all over your body. Sirius was a disciple of Basilides, who was a big fan of mystical neurology. I believe in some or have been the first to coin the phrase. Basilides was also a founder of the Christian sect and incorporated the teachings of philosopher Pythagoras. Known for the work for mathematics of triangles and even explained the triangular shape of the Tadimus talisman. There's still some bait about what the words mean, trace back to Hebrew Abba, Koradura, Holy Mother, Father, Holy Ghost, Abba, Tirudbari, out, bad spirit, out. Instead, Abba Koradura went on to be used in talisman. Uh, against many elements well in the seventeenth century. In his book Journal de Plague, Daniel Defover of Londoners who posted a word on the door works to ward off sickness.